So I'm Brett, I'm a Physician Assistant Director of Street Medicine at USC and also um, my other role is Vice Chair of the International Street Medicine Institute, which we'll talk a little bit about ooh, um, as, as we go on. So um, we're gonna talk about street medicine and it was interesting on my way in, somebody was like, oh, you're gonna talk about street medicine, is that like meth? And I was like, well, I, no, I do street medicine. And I was like, but I don't do meth. Um, so what, what street medicine is, is actually, um, it's this kind of radical, but also logical and intuitive way of delivering healthcare directly to the unsheltered homeless, um, under the bridges, behind the dumpsters, wherever they are with the idea of providing the same quality of care on the street that they would expect in a clinic. Um, come on in. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to rethink of what access means. So for us, it means we can't just provide access to the doctor's visit, but we have to be able to dispense medications, draw labs, and do all those things on the street. So our motto is to go to the people, but we know that after we go there, we have to stay with them. And if we're willing to walk this journey with them in solidarity, then we also have a duty to tell their story um, when we go certain places and rehumanize uh, themselves. Um, we're extremely passionate about what we do. I don't know if, uh, I know we just had Easter, but the Latin term for passion is to suffer. And this is probably our greatest gift, is our ability to share in the suffering with our patients, but do so with joy, not with uh, grumbling. Um, and only then will they know how much we really love them and care for them. But it's not uh, like a warm, fuzzy love, it's like a more of a gritty love. It's expressed when we're riding the, the bus with one of our clients and sitting with them as a friend in solidarity as they're getting verbally harassed and abused from other folks riding the bus. Um, I've, I've been doing street medicine, we were talk, just talking about this before, for 13 years, most of it was in Philadelphia. And there was a lot of folks that would live in the woods, um, about half mile in, in the woods just outside of the city. And when there was a big snowstorm, we'd have to shovel half mile to make sure that the tents didn't collapse on them. And they, we did lose a few folks that way. But, but that's just a little bit of that sharing of their suffering. And when they see that we're willing to do that, then the suffering tends to go away and we're left with this really wonderful relationship. Um, if I had one picture to show what the spirit of street medicine is, it would be this one. So it's, in this picture, you can see that we are, we're all bent down in the servant stance. Um, by the way, any patient pictures, they did give consent when not everything was signed appropriately. Um, but you can see we're all bent down in a servant stance. You can't tell, with the exception of that young lady, but you can't tell who's the doctor, who's the nurse, who's the student, who's the CEO of LAC USC Hospital who's in this picture. But what you can tell is that the patient is given the position of authority. And if we're going to give the patients the position of authority, that means that we have to give up control ourselves. It means that we have to leave the comfort of our JACO uh, certified clinics or even our mobile vans that are still our space and enter with them into their space. And when we do that, it means that we have to be willing to go places that we just 
might not be able to control and don't know exactly what's going to happen. So crawling into this hole under the bridge, I didn't know exactly what was in there. I didn't know exactly what I was going to see. But all I knew is that if I was going to go to the people, my patient's in there, so I had to be in there too. So my journey um, on all this started in uh, 2006. I did some work in some shelter-based clinics in Chicago, moved to Philadelphia to go to PA school, and uh, wanted to volunteer with a place that, similar to what we did in Chicago, and found that there was no healthcare being delivered, directly delivered to the homeless. So we had to start our own, our own clinic. And um, so I started in, in 2006 with a shelter-based clinic, graduated, worked, opened another shelter-based clinic, and then noticed that we were tied to these shelters and that when the folks would leave the shelters, we would lose them. And we knew what their medical problems were. We knew that they weren't going to do well outside, which is when we decided to take the uh, care out onto the streets. So I approached the hospital that I work for, told them what my idea was, and they said, that's great. That's a great idea, Brett. You can do it, but we're not going to pay for it. You need to find a way to buy your own time. So I was able to buy one day a week of my time, which was every Wednesday. So first two days of the week, I worked in the hospital, Wednesday on the street, Thursday, Friday in the hospital. And with that day, I opened up another clinic, started a hospital-based consult service, which I'll get to in a minute, um, and started street rounds. So the consult service, I wanted to mention it because it was an interesting development in that we, if uh, somebody was homeless admitted to the hospital, we would go and see them inside the hospital, help the inpatient team understand what their version of homelessness looks like and how their medical issues will be expressed in the context of their homelessness. And a lot of times it changed management inside the hospital and definitely changed management outside the hospital. Um, and also, so I was working with a hospitalist, I'm a, I'm a PA, and then I, on Monday and Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, I would ask the doctors I work with to consult with me. And they were like, you're our PA, why would we consult with you? Um, but so, so I really had to develop the model. So this was one of the first uh, hospital consults that we had. Um, and I wanna go through some stories that just totally changed the way that I thought about medicine and thought about how we deliver care. So this is a guy who was sleeping outside on a heating vent, got a third degree burn, um, which was then skin grafted. Um, and after you get a skin graft, you need to stay off of it, non-weight bearing for weeks. He was 12 weeks non-weight bearing, discharged back out onto the street. Can anybody guess what happened? The graft failed, right? You don't need to be a doctor to know that that graft is gonna fail. So the graft failed, he got an infection in his bone, osteomyelitis, which was acute, turned into chronic osteomyelitis, and they're recommending an amputation. So he didn't want an amputation because obviously, if you have one leg and you're living on the streets, you might as well give up everything you have forever and you become this big target. So he kept leaving the hospital. And when I got the consult on him, I walked in to this, it was almost like a war zone in a way because he hated us. We, meaning the medical, the medical folks in the hospital, hated him. 
And he was coming to the hospital for help, right? He came because he was scared. He didn't know what to do. And as soon as he walks in the door, there's a police officer outside of his room. And, and this is how we're treating him when he comes for help. Um, so for the first time, I really found myself standing, and I've mentioned solidarity a lot, but standing with him against my colleagues and, and really found that when I was in that role, I found myself as an advocate in a room of medical providers. And then when I would leave, I was a medical provider in a room of advocates. Um, and so I, I knew that, that we had to help them understand what, what was happening out there. This was one of our first uh, street medicine patients. And I wanted to tell his story for a few reasons. One, he had California roots in Philadelphia. So he had a master's degree from Lehigh, which is a very good university. Um, he had a PhD from Cal Berkeley and was a clinical psychologist at the state hospital uh, before it closed. So he was like a functional alcoholic. He would drink all weekend and then sort of sober up during the week. When the state hospital closed, he became a non-functioning alcoholic. And when I saw him, he, he did get social security. So half of the month, he was living in the Howard Johnson with one of his old schizophrenic patients. And the other half, he was on the street with his buddy. Um, so I went in the hospital. You can kind of tell by looking at him, he has really bad lung disease. I went to see him in the hospital. He was being discharged back outside. And I asked him if I could follow him outside. And he said, sure. So I went out. And he was still short of breath, didn't have any of his medications. I said, why don't you have any medications? He said they wanted 600 and some dollars. Nobody can afford that. So we got him his medications for free, um, but it was too late and he was back into the hospital. I tried everything I could to get him admitted to buy us time. And now he was in the section of the month that he was gonna be able to be in the Howard Johnson. I thought of everything. I was like, maybe he needs PT, maybe he needs OT, maybe whatever, but failed and he was discharged back to the Howard Johnson. The next day, I went to knock on the door. No answer, it was like 10 in the morning. I knocked again, his buddy answers the door, he's drunk, and I see his knee is bleeding, and I see my patient in the back with blood coming from his head. And the problem, what happened was, so he was in his 70s and he walked with a walker, and PT did see him, but they didn't test him while he was drunk. And drunk was his baseline. So he was walking around his hotel room with his walker drunk and fell. Thankfully, it was just a scalp laceration, um, even though it bled a lot. We found out that he was a veteran and, and had him placed in assisted living for veteran. He spent more days in the hospital the year before than out of the hospital. After he was placed, he was not admitted one time. Um, and, and it really drove home the importance of housing, sobriety, and medications for us. But around that time, we really grew the program. Uh, we had nine shelter and soup kitchen clinics. We had a street team, we had a hospital-based consult service and a medical respite, which is uh, they call recuperative care here. And in some ways we became a victim of our own success because there's a term, we, we call it uh, retreat from the street, where you start doing well in what you're doing and then they try and like domesticate you. So we got our patients insurance when we started 25% had insurance and then a few years later it was in the 70% and they said, that's great, Brett, but you're not billing for anything. Everything you're doing is free. They have insurance, get them into the clinics. So I 
tried to do what my bosses told me. I made this elegant way of transitioning patients from the street to the clinic. I was going to see them outside on the street. I was going to see them in the hospital. And it was a complete failure. Um, and I mean, it didn't fail for everybody, but it failed for almost everybody. But I was still trying to make, make my bosses happy. And there was one, one lady, she was a nurse. I'd been taking care of her on the street for two years. Um, she was a typical story. She was in a car accident, wound up addicted to opiates, and, and wound up on the street. And um, then eventually we got her into housing. And I said, you know, you ha I said, now that you're not on the street, you should come see me in the, in the regular clinic. So by that time, I'd been seeing her for almost three years. So we had a wonderful relationship. I went, we had a great visit, left. I told our nurse that I saw her. And she said, well, she relapsed. And I said, well, she didn't tell me that she relapsed. And she said, that's because she said, when she sees you in the clinic, you're, you're her doctor. You're not Brett anymore. And I had done everything that they said to do. It was the same person. I had seen her for years and years and then tried to bring her into the clinic. And it was a failure because of the institutional trauma that she had witnessed over these years. Um, and from that point on, so now in street medicine, it's a little bit of a derogatory term, but we call it the go fetch model, where they'll send folks out to the street, build these relationships and try to bring them back in. Um, and I changed it to that. We will treat patients where the patient prefers to be treated. If that means that if they want to be treated outside in their camp, and that's where they prefer to be treated for now, then it's our duty. Why is it cute? It's our duty to provide the highest quality care possible. Why we care so much about the medical portion for the unsheltered homeless is because the life expectancy is 42 to 52 years. The reason for the range is because it depends on what study you look at, but either way, it's low. There's no other single social determinant of health that decreases life expectancy by that much. 38% have two or more major medical illnesses. 25% with severe mental illness and 30% with drug use disorder. Who thought that those numbers would have been higher, the mental illness and drug use disorder? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. Most people think that they're much higher and studies, I mean, they all, there's been a few studies on it, obviously, but they, why is it? Um, but they're all within the same percentage, a few, uh, percentage points. So the question is, why, when we're, when we're outside and we talk to the folks, why does it seem so much higher? And I think there's a few things. One, we remember the guy walking around talking to himself and acting crazy a lot more than we remember the other three that were just sitting there minding their own business. So I think one, it's, it's just a perception. And the other reason is because, and there's just starting to get research out on this, a large percentage, at least 30%, have um, undiagnosed or lost to follow-up intellectual disabilities um, and cognitive dysfunction. So if you look at things that increase your risk of executive function, things that executive function would be planning and prioritizing, having self-awareness, like if I'm talking to you and I start getting loud and you start getting upset and now we're yelling to say, all right, 
if, if I keep this up, I'm not going to get what I need and calm yourself down. We all do that naturally, but y you lose that. Um, then, so th then you have executive dysfunction and you can't complete what needs to be completed in your life. You definitely cannot hold down a job. So things that affect executive dysfunction would be ACEs, adverse childhood events, traumatic brain injury, alcohol or um, drug use, mental illness. And our population has much higher rates of all of those things. So what's the cumulative effect? We don't know. So we have executive dysfunction. We have uh, undiagnosed intellectual disability. There's going to be a paper. Um, a friend of mine from the Netherlands is publishing a paper on this, on the intellectual disability piece, but it's at least a third. In the US, by the way, you can't diagnose intellectual disability over the age of 18. So if they're not getting it done in the schools, it's not getting it done. So one of the interesting things about mortality in the homeless is that until very, very recently, really no studies have separated out the unsheltered homeless from the sheltered homeless. We knew anecdotally that they were much sicker and died sooner, but we had no proof of it. So they just published a paper out of Boston. Boston has the best um, street medicine program in the world, and most of the research comes out of there. And they had three times higher mortality in the unsheltered population than the sheltered population, and 10 times more than the general public. But the really interesting thing was the causes of death, right? You have cancer, heart disease are one and two, and then you get substance use after that. Cancer and heart disease, these are things that you treat with basic primary care and preventative medicine, but they're not getting it. So that's part of the reason why we're out there. It's two of the top causes we would treat. How do you treat heart disease? Heart disease? So control hypertension, um, control lipids. Um, so I would think that diet has a lot to, to do with that. Yeah, diet is, diet's difficult because they don't really get choices. So whatever is given to them is given to them. Is but, that part of what you do at all? Um, it depends on their situation. Like, uh, so w when I started in LA, as you guys know, the city or the county is divided in, into the eight spas. And I went to each spa and tried to talk to at least 100 folks on the street in each spa to find out, because I didn't know the area that well, and to find out what services they were getting, who was helping them, who they felt was good at helping them, who was not good at helping them. And that let me know who my good community partners might be, um, and also where some of the gaps would be. And outside of Skid Row, there's some pockets of areas I found where they're getting reliable access to food, but most of them don't have reliable access to food. Like around our hospital campus, they're getting two to three meals a week. Um, and I don't mean like the granola bar somebody throws out the window, like an actual meal. Um, so yeah, it's hard to treat. So, so the, the, two, the top two things, the American Heart Association just tried to give me all these free handouts to you know, educate our patients. The top two things are diet and exercise. Diet, they have no control over. And what are they going to do, join a gym? They're, they have forced walking all the time. Um, and it's just not realistic to expect they're going to exercise the way we think of exercise. So we do our best with the heart disease. And one example of that is this. 
So there, there is early evidence that street medicine does work. So this was my, this was from one of, from our uh, program in Philadelphia, where our hypertensive patients were actually better managed than the traditional clinic. The uh, LVPG was the traditional clinic. So here's us, there's them. So um, it is possible to control these things on the street. We saw it's about 1,500 patients a year. So it actually was a decent sample size. And we can improve healthcare utilization, right? We don't want, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for them. It's not good for the hospitals if they're using the ER in the hospital. So we were able to decrease ED visits by 80%. And readmissions is another big thing, almost 70%. But that was Philadelphia, right? This is LA. And we have Skid Row, and we have all these other places. And the first time I went to Skid Row, I know you guys have probably all been on Skid Row, you might be so used to it, it doesn't affect you anymore. But the first time I was there, it was really a five or even a six sense experience because you could sense the like spiritual warfare on the streets that you were walking around with. And that, as frightening as that was, what's more frightening about LA is that less than 10% of the unsheltered homeless are on Skid Row. That means that over 90% are not on Skid Row. And we also tend to throw out a lot of numbers, right? On how many homeless, the, the, the point in time count's coming out in a few weeks, and here we're gonna hear it again, what the numbers are. And I thought it was important, these are from 2017, to, to just like we contextualize the medical issues, contextualize the LA homelessness compare to the rest of the country. So LA has more homelessness, more unsheltered homeless than New York. New York has 2,500. Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, Philadelphia, San Antonio, San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Austin, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Columbus, Fort Worth, Charlotte, oh. Indianapolis, Seattle, Denver, DC, El Paso, Boston, Detroit, Nashville, Memphis, Portland, Oklahoma City, more than all of them combined. San Francisco, no. Not even close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does this account for individuals who move to Los Angeles and are okay with being homeless? It's just from the point in time count. It just means whoever's on the street. Whoever's on the street. Yeah. And so not only is it volume in LA, but we see gnarly things, right? The, the, the folks that I've encountered on the street are much sicker than the folks that we had in Philadelphia. Um, but we have learned that, that if we keep coming back and we keep seeing them, that we can start to see some results. So that was less than a month with a few times a week changing, changing wound dressings. And the other good news is that we have support of that we're not alone in this work. Other folks are doing it and we can learn from them.
So I'm the vice chair of the Street Medicine Institute, and it's an international organization. We have about 140 member cities around the world and provide technical assistance to, to all of them. So um, my load is about 30 or so cities, depending on the time of year usually. But these are just some of the folks that we have to kind of share in our network and learn from. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is quality assurance. And I know that, that um, we don't have a lot of medical providers in the room, but one of the things that, that uh, medicine does, that the social service sector, and even medicine within the public sector, like the county systems, they don't track data very well. Um, and, and, and you can say, I think we're doing a good job, but show me what, what good of a job you're doing. Like, how do you know that you're doing a good job? You might feel that you are, but we don't know, right? And I got in big trouble because in, when, I, when I started, I thought we were doing pretty well. And I was in this meeting and I was with the lawyers, with the hospital. And one of the guys said, you know, Brett, I just don't know if you're providing good, bad clinic care or good street care. And I wanted to say neither. I'm providing good clinic care on the street. But I had no proof of it. So I went back and I was like, you know what? We have to learn how to speak their language. And a lot of us are funded by county programs. The numbers of homelessness continue to go up. And at some point, they might come calling and decide which one of us is going to stay. So I wanted to talk about some of the ways to think about it in the context of homelessness and that this is something that we can apply to us. So the quality assurance program concepts, this is from the World Health Organization. I'm going to tell you how I think of it in street medicine, but you'll have to think of it of like applying it to your own practice. So the first one is effectiveness. In, in medicine, to show effectiveness, we use the adult core measures. So it's hypertension control, diabetes control, all of those things. We try and follow the same ones on the street that they follow in the clinic. Some of them, like hypertension you saw, we're okay at. Others, like mam getting mammograms, were horrible, horrible. But even if we're horrible, we can show a healthcare disparity and use that to get funding to try and decrease that, that disparity. So you just have to think about how, how can you prove effectiveness? Sometimes it's even just, you say, well, we don't have these measures that we can track, but what about um, client satisfaction? Where you have them fill out a survey and they talk about, yes, my, my outreach worker is amazing and without them, I don't know what I would do. And then you give them a Likert scale, one to five, and then you say, all right, our outreach workers are doing great. They have all fives. And then you have something to show. The next one is efficiency. So as some of the, some of the teams are starting to add street medicine to the E6 model, and efficiency is a huge thing that can really kill some of your results. So for example, the E6 team, are you guys from, I didn't hear anybody said they were part of the E6 team, but are you familiar with it? So they're fun. You said yeah. So, so they're funded by Measure H, and they're multidisciplinary teams. Usually, a housing coordinator, outreach worker, behavioral health counselor, 
um, drug and alcohol counselor, and some of them have a medical component. I'll just speak to the medical component. They kind of ride along with the rest of the teams. So, they, so the, they'll go to where the teams, so the teams have their priority folks that they want to see to get into housing. That's their primary responsibility. The medical people, their primary responsibility is the medicine. So if they spend all day riding around with the folks that don't necessarily need medical care, but they need housing, then at the end of the day, maybe they saw one or two patients. And then they're going to, when, whenever somebody says, all right, show me that this model works and you saw 30 patients in a whole month, they're going to say the model doesn't work. So the way that we do it is we have a uh, community health worker who's, who has lived experience. He lived on Skid Row from the time he was 9 to 13 um, by himself, joined a gang. This was in the 90s, was in the LA gang scene, um, did, did his time, came out, and now he's worked in the criminal justice system, he's worked in methadone clinics, and he's worked for the past 10 years with one of the USC researchers tracking uh, homicide drug users. So they were done with what they were doing with the research, so now he works for us, and his job is to know where everybody is at all times. And then when it's time for us to go out on street rounds, he kind of makes appointments almost with them. He goes around, tells them when we're coming out so that they can be ready. They're at their 10 or wherever they want to meet us. Um, and we can see about eight patients a day, which is not far off of a traditional clinic because we plan. And accessible. We think at street medicine and a lot of the FSP programs and anybody that leaves their office to go out on the street that we have access down, right? We go to them. It can't be much more accessible than that. But one of the first things we talked about was what access means. So for us, it's more than just being available or coming to them. It's access to all of their healthcare, the medications, the labs, all of that is healthcare, not just the visit. The other thing is phones. So we all know what the, our, the problem that our patients or clients have with, with phones. So we all have cell phones. There's one number that they call that we man 24-7, and it goes directly to one of our team members. And, and that way, because if they call, so doctors we're, we're, are the worst, right? They talk about access, and then you call, and you get the answering service, and they page the doctor, and they call you back whenever they feel like it, and that's not access. So, so it, it's a cell phone. Wherever they get access to a phone and they call us, then we know we can get a hold of They know they can get a hold of us. Acceptable. I've been told that this is a term that I should not use, that um, it offends folks if we say that what we're doing is not acceptable to them. So this is the World Health Organization. It's not something that I made up. But I think in the US, um, maybe it's more of a cultural competence thing, where the way that we're approaching it is a way that's acceptable to them or within what they, their culture. Safety. So when I talk about safety, a lot of people think it's my safety, my safety on the streets. And that's not what I'm talking about, although we do have a, a policy and protocol for safety. But this is their safety. So in, in the inpatient setting, for example, patient safety would be like having a call bell or sending somebody out to the home to do a fall assessment. That's how I think about patient safety. For us, it's thinking about things like access to clean water, 
um, a guy last week, we noticed that where he was urinating and defecating kind of went down into his camp, um, which, I mean, this is stuff that we would worry about basic sanitation at the turn of the 20th century, not, the, not in, in the 21st century. Um, so we had to dig him a trench that went off of the area that he was so that when he urinated, it would go off instead of into his camp. So this is how we have to think about patient safety, uh, teaching safe injection techniques, those type of things. And equitable. We talk a lot about equity and health equity. And um, obviously, that has to be woven into everything that we do. One of the things that I like to talk about equity in in uh, medicine is we want the care to be equitable, but we don't want to fund it the way that it needs to be funded. So equity means that if you require more services, you're getting more services. And if you don't require more services, you don't get more services. But, but they staff us on a shoestring, um, bare bones operation, and then want the metrics to be the same. And that's not equity. So, so it's uh, reframing what that means. And then how to pick your deliverables, because you guys are not running medical practices, right? So just think about those six things within that, that we talked about from the World Health Organization and how it might apply to what you're doing, to your practices. Um, and then you should have some things within each Thing. So, for example, patient safety, you hand out blankets, you hand out socks, you hand out anything. There, that's a safety aspect to it. It's stuff that you're probably already doing. You just have to think about it differently in, in, in this context. So we, we have two different things. Again, I don't know how applicable this is to you, but we use the adult core measures and, and utilization metrics. So like hospital readmissions and, and ED visits. So one of the common themes to this whole talk is, is reimagining what we see as access. Does anybody recognize this place? It's like right near City Hall. It says, Homeless Help Desk. And there's a guy sleeping right there on, on the bench next to the Homeless Help Desk. And I saw that until I, I asked him, have you ever been in the building with, for the homeless help desk. He has never been in there. And I said, why don't you go in there? It says homeless help desk. I'm not going in there. So why? Right? There's something about that that is not acceptable to him. And I learned this uh, pretty early in my practice. And this is how, this is how I think of it. So we opened up. It, it was in a uh, winter shelter, which was just in a, it was a gymnasium and they put out cots. The, there was no services, they just didn't want people to freeze to death. And the little gym office was where I opened up my clinic. And uh, there was about 75 or 80 folks sleeping in the winter shelter, and I would see maybe two to three a night. And I'm like, why is nobody coming to see me? I'm right here, I went to the people. Um, so I left, because I had plenty of time, and started going cot to cot, introducing myself, letting them know who I was, why I was there, and I found the worst pathology that way. And I realized that even though I was a few feet away from them, I was still expecting them to make the first outreach to me. Um, and that's not going to work that way. So that's why he's not going to the homeless help desk.
So this is Pappy. And Pappy is as colorful as you would imagine him to be looking at him. But I put this picture in there. You can't see it too well. But this is like, this is the measure of success to us, right? Pappy is, uh, he was panhandling in our Street Medicine t-shirt. He was a fan. And um, so I th I, as we're talking about quality, this is a, a quality deliverable to me. That, that whatever we were doing, he liked it. But when we first meet a lot of our folks, and, and just like you do, this is how they feel. Sorry, folks, the future is canceled. Or that they're going to die alone. But it amazes me um, not just how they survive, but how they thrive in whatever environment that they're in. I took this picture outside a guy who was sleeping in an overturned dumpster. Um, and we talked a little bit about sanitation, but this underneath there, that's his urinal. So his method of sanitation was he would urinate in this urinal. When it was full, he would bring it outside and dump it. And above that was the book he was reading, Prayer, Faith, and Healing. And I just thought it was, it was amazing. Here's a guy living in, his, living in a dumpster with urine in his front yard, and he still had hope. So I think more than anything, that's what we all try to bring to the people that we serve is the knowledge that somebody knows that they're out there and cares that they're out there and is willing to walk with them on their journey. So I'll leave you with a story from my first trip to LA. Um, I was here with the Street Medicine Institute. They took me around to a bunch of the sites. They took me to Skid Row. It was the first time I had ever seen Skid Row. And I was kind of... I've seen homelessness and, and looked at street medicine in a lot of places. I'd never seen anything like LA. I've been to third world countries. It's worse. Um, so I said, take me by the hospital. And, I, and they took me by, uh, this is LACUSC. I'm sure you guys all recognize it. And there was a dozen people just on the lawn. And um, so I asked them to let me out. So I went out. I went to the first guy, and he was telling me he, he wanted to get, I didn't know the area that well back then. I don't remember where he wanted to get to, but wherever he wanted to get to, he needed to take two buses to get there. He was hit by a car, brought by ambulance to LAC USC, and had a non-operative hip fracture, and was told to be in the wheelchair for 12 weeks. And then they wheeled him out to the bus stop and said, see you later. Um, so I tried my best to, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to get this guy a bus ticket. I don't know where he's going, but wherever he wants to go, we're going to help him get there. I pulled up the, the bus route for him, and I could tell cognitively he wasn't making it there. And then there was also this space of walking between one stop to the next, and it wasn't going to work. And I knew that if he was in Philadelphia, I would know exactly what to do, and that he'd be inside somewhere that night. So I was feeling pretty hopeless and helpless, as we say. Um, so I decided to go to the next guy. And the next guy was really drunk. Um, so I started talking to him to see, to start the needs assessment. And I said, so what do you think we need the most? And he's like, close all the liquor stores. And I was like, yes, that would be the perfect thing for you. But I don't think we're going to be able to do that. So what would be the second thing? And he looks me straight in the eye and he's like, do your job. And then he passed out. And, and it, it, the way he said it just pierced my heart. And I was like, what is our job? 
And, um, and that was actually the moment when I decided I was coming here. But uh, it's all about deciding what, what it is your job actually is and then following that. So what we're doing right now for, for USC is we're seeing there's two parts to the program. The first one is we see the consult service at LEC USC and then follow them on the streets wherever they go. So if you have any clients that end up getting admitted, um, if you want to give us a call, we'll see them during the inpatient stay. Our first priority is that they don't get discharged to the street. So everybody that we see is expected to be discharged to the street and about 40% were able to divert elsewhere. Um, so that's the first priority. And then if, if they do get discharged outside, then we follow them outside anywhere in the county. Um, and then the second part of the program is just the street work, basically. And right now, because we don't have that big of a team, we don't, eventually I'd love to just go tent, tent to tent and get to know everybody. But mostly right now it's on referral on somebody that you meet that's really sick. So our, our biggest limitation, I'll tell you what, what, what's happening now and what's ideal. So right now our biggest limitation is staff. I'm the only full-time provider. We have um, another PA that's with us one day a week, a nurse and a community health worker, and that's it. Um, now, we are looking at some of the different, like we just signed a contract to cover some of the E6 teams. So if there's teams that you know, are looking to contract, I, we would be happy to do that. And it's not about the money, it's about fulfilling the vision that we have, which is that everybody sleeping on the streets of LA has access to basic care. And, and if we're going to fulfill that vision, it can't be just me and a few other folks doing it. You're gonna to have to build a workforce. So, um, so that's our limitation now. Ideally what happens is you have the, and this is what, how Boston does it. You have the same team that follows them throughout the continuum from the streets to the shelter to housing. Because what happens is you get people that don't want to accept housing because they don't want to lose their caregivers. Um, and then you just become one other person that's abandoning them like everybody else. So, um, so that's, that's the ideal. You know, every year they rethink about the budgets for Measure H and, and where the allocations are. And from what I understand, I wasn't here, but from what I understand, physical health was intentionally left out because they said this is, this is a housing bill, it's housing money, it's not for medical care. And then the folks got out there and they were like, these people need medical care and they can't house them fast enough, right? We all know that they can't house them fast enough. So as long as they're gonna be on the street and they're going to be, then we have to relieve the suffering on the street. And we have to do the best we can for them out there. So, so now we're just required to provide more on the street. We have to get better what we're doing outside.